does have it all. All of our pre-owned vehicles are Hubler Q certified, which include a 128-point vehicle inspection, a free Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties. A two-year, 100,000-mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day, 1,000-mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. Good afternoon. Thanks for listening to the Fan Midday Show with Jimmy Cook. I'm Scott Agnes. Let's go right to the hotline to learn more about the Pacers' top draft pick, Jarris Walker. We're joined with Brian Nash, the IMG Director of Basketball, joining us on the hotline. Brian, how are you, and what was your reaction last Thursday seeing not only Jarris taken by the Pacers, but at least a couple other former IMG players? Yeah, Scott and Jimmy, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, it was a it was a great night. It's like one of those nights where you're like a proud parent, and uh, anytime you can, you know, when you have one player drafted, it's a, it's kind of a dream come true. And then when you get three players in the top sixteen picks, it was uh, it was kind of a surreal night for us. How much conversation can you share that maybe you had with the Pacers and and talking about Jarris Walker and previewing what's to come? I'm sure they had you know, significant conversations trying to understand his game and what he's about. And one thing they highlighted was how with IMG, he started kind of as a point guard and it evolved into a much bigger player after that. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, when, when we go through this process every year, uh, I think a lot of the questions that we get are, you know, background stuff and character and, and those things. I think a lot of the scouts do a good enough job with, with watching the kids play over the course of time and kind of finding out what their skill set is and those things. But, uh, you yeah, know, Jarris is, uh, he, he's a special talent. Um, you know, I, I think the, the Pacers got a, a really good one, uh, not only a, a very good player, but just a high character person. Brian, what were your initial reactions and perspective when Jarris Walker shows up on IMG Academy's campus as a freshman? Yeah, this is the this is kind of a funny one. He he had visited. Um, you know, he was the number one eighth grader in the country. Um, you know, for whatever that's worth in regards to that nowadays. Yeah. Um, but you know, he walked in and he looked like Larry Johnson. I mean, he was six six. He was two hundred and thirty five pounds. He was chiseled, and and you said, oh my god, this kid's really going to be a freshman next year. So we were super excited to to get him in the program and. Uh, Again, just uh, the the way he was able to compete as a you know as a freshman on a on a team that had three other NBA players on it and came in and and you know really just invested in hard work and, and was coachable and you know that's one of those things that I think everybody looks for so much in value in players. I mean, he just uh, you know he, he kind of hit the ground running and, and we were so excited for what the future was going to be. Joined with Brian Nash, IMG's director of basketball, where Jarris Walker played high school ball down there. When you when you think of Jarris and his development, where do you think you saw the most improvement all, over all those years and then becoming a one-and-done player at Houston? Yeah. Um, so he's he's kind of unique. I mean, the, the the I've used the term with him like he's a Swiss Army knife. Like he can you know he can do a little bit of everything. I know he's got the reputation and, and a lot of the things that were talked about with him were you know being a great defender. Um, I, I know that he that was demanded of him here, and I know Coach uh, Coach Sampson at, at Houston demands that, and that's a big part of what they do. But you know he does his his his. his Shooting has improved so much over the years. His ability to make plays off the dribble and either score for himself or make decisions for his teammates. So again, I think uh, you know that's that, that's one of those good things about him is that he's he's going to be able to find a way to impact the game in, in multiple areas. Brian, we know obviously from his story that Jarris is the first player to go through IMG Academy for all four years and with a program that's on the basketball side really only been around since 2000 and the national spotlight has been on you guys for the better part of a decade how has that selling process for what IMG Academy can do for a young player changed over time and with Jarris kind of being the guinea pig for what can happen if you're there all four years uh, what are your takeaways from what his departure and his ultimate journey as he continues in the NBA can do over at IMG yeah, he's definitely uh, become the poster child for us for, for, for a lot of our conversations when families are interested. Um, you know, the, the, the basketball piece here is, is, is off the charts. It's fantastic. They're going to 
you know, they're going to get great coaching. They're going to get great uh, development over the course of the time. But the, the, the thing that we're real fortunate about is at the academy is we take a holistic approach. So every team's got their access to their own nutritionist. They have a leadership coach. They have a mental conditioning coach. Um, they've gotten into the sports science side with load management. So I think they just they, they learn to have a pro mentality at an earlier stage. And they're in a super competitive environment and their schedule, um, you know, the, 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 the elite youth basketball world right now with, the, you know, some of these really good high school teams in the AAU has, has kind of set it up where you're always competing against the best players. Um, so, you know, Jarris for us to go through and be that first four-year player and to, you know, see the full growth, not only just as a player, but as a person, um, you know, for us, that's amazing. And, uh, you know, just for, for Jarris to actually achieve his goals is just, it makes us super happy. Brian Nash of IMG with us. The, it, Brian, it reminds me to an, a lesser extent of a lot of these foreign players who start going pro at, at 16 and 17. It's not quite to that level, but it's when you can really start taking the game more seriously have those pro aspects to your game go out away from home being in an uncomfortable environment in terms of being away from friends and those sorts of things and really try to center and focus on your future if you're that type of high level athlete yeah and then the the good thing about us too within our so so we have multiple teams at each one of our i mean we had 18 basketball teams last year but we do have a a national structure where you know we have a post-grad national team which has got 50 years and older kids so our our high school teams are you know in 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 the way we have dog daily practices i mean they compete against each other in practice um you know multiple times over the course of the year so it's not like you're just with your high school team and you compete against each other every day well we're able to put them in different positions where they can play against older players um you know players that have height players that have size so it's a you know it's a very competitive environment when you look back at Jarris's senior year and the final conversations before he ended up at Houston, what were the biggest areas that you guys felt at IMG as you were working with him? He needed to take that jump at Houston to be able to have the one-and-done outcome that he did. And as you look at his game now, obviously to be able to go where he did in the draft and finish one-and-done at a program like Houston is an accomplishment in and of itself. But where do you want to continue to see him grow as he ends up here in Indiana? Yeah, I think so. His senior year was, I mean, if we go back quickly to his progression, he comes in as a freshman and, you know, he's fitting in and he's playing his role um, a lot more inside, a lot more physical. And and then as you grow as a player, you always want to expand your game. You want to be, you want to play on the perimeter. You want to work in your perimeter shooting. Um, And, you know, he started doing that sophomore, junior year. He had an injury in there where he missed some time, but you know, he struggled a little bit, and I think the struggle is good because I think the struggle helps you find out the best version of yourself and who you are. And his senior year for us, I mean, he took on a role where, you know what, winning was the most important thing. It was coach whatever role you want me to play. And, you know, he played a lot of center for us our our senior year because that was that's what was going to help us win. So I think as he translated into college, I think he was ahead of the game because he knew what he was. And I think he knew how he could be successful. And I think that's why he continues to, you know, he knows what those skill set areas are. Um, He knows he can be a a really good defender. He knows he's a great rebounder. And then his offensive game is going to keep evolving. So again, I think that's some of the reasons why, you know, and, and, and coach Sampson obviously did a phenomenal job with him in a year and, and putting them in, a, in such a competitive environment. I mean, you, you look at that program and everything they've done and, um, you know, just how competitive they are, I think that helps set Jarris up as well. And, Brian, those same traits you listed are, I think, the same things we saw at Houston. He was like the fourth option. He took a back seat to Marcus Sasser and, and others there. He was their best defender. He, he was willing to play multiple positions. Didn't need to shoot, but he did when he could. And, and I think one of the real – values in a player coming to the NBA if you're not that top top tier is knowing your role owning owning it and you can make hundreds of millions of dollars just locking in I mean take a look at Draymond Green right for example of knowing who you are and what you're about and the other thing Brian I think that impresses me about Jarris is his family situation he's got three older sisters 
and, and that whole thing of how that shaped him, but at the same time being away from them, at, him and them at IMG, I think probably helped in his maturity at a young age. Is that one of the big sales points of IMG as well? Yeah, I mean, it, it's not for everybody. Um, you know, again, I, I think in his situation, you know, Horace and Marcia, you know, mom and dad are you know, just, just great parents. I mean, there, there's the story that we tell about, I think it was Jarris's third or fourth week in school down here where, you know, he just got in a little bit of trouble in the dorm. I mean, it wasn't anything serious, but it was just kind of, uh, it gave Horace an opportunity to call down here and said, you know what, my son doesn't act like this. I don't know if this is the place for him and threaten to have him out of here after the first three or four weeks. So uh, it kind of gives you, you know, the discipline of the family, the tough love. And, uh, you know, Jarris wanted this. I mean, Jarris wanted the break. He wanted to, you know, he didn't want to be penalized for a great opportunity. And, you know, I think he articulated that to his family and was able to, you know, convince them that this was going to be the best place for him. Brian, as you look at the growth of IMG Academy and you're simulating and mapping out what the next five to 10 years looks like for you guys down in Florida, what, what do you envision that process being now that, as we've already talked about, you have a four-year player that's gone through the ranks and now has made it to the NBA? Yeah, no, this, uh, you know, this world is getting competitive. It's a little bit of a trickle down now with what's happening in colleges where, you know, kids are starting to talk about NIL more and, uh, you know, the schools won't have collective themselves, but as the states start to, uh, the state associations start to allow NIL for high school players. I mean, that's, that's impacting where kids go. So, um, you know, recruiting, gets a little bit tougher. There are options out there. We, uh, we play in a great league, the NIBC, which is the premier high school league in the country, which is a great draw for us because the kids know they're going to play against the best players every year. Um, but, you know, when you have the success of, uh, you know, three players drafted in, in the top 16, and, you know, we have 14 players that are playing in the NBA right now, um, and then when people are fortunate enough to visit campus and they see the facilities and the people down here, um, you know, I think we can, we're not really going to try to change too much. We're just going to try to do it a little bit better and, uh, you know, just, just uh, keep, keep continuing that holistic approach with the kids. Talking with Brian Nash of the IMG, Director of Basketball. Brian, I want to pivot one one question here, and that's because Zach Eady, Purdue star, spent some time down at IMG and now is crushing it at Purdue, had serious conversations about going to the NBA, but ultimately is going to return to Purdue. Can you kind of describe maybe what you felt like he was like when he arrived on campus there at IMG, um, maybe the rawness to his game, and now where he's at as – the top basketball player in college last year. Yeah, I don't think uh, I don't think anybody could have uh, guessed or you know forecasted the trajectory of where he's at. Um, you know, Zach had Zach was from Canada, and one of one of when I had coached in college, one of my former players was coaching him on the AAU circuit and said, "Hey, I, I want you to take a look at this kid. He's you know he's he's big, he's massive, he's." You know, the one thing that stood out was that as big as he was and he had only been playing for a couple of years was that he had really good hands and really good feet. And, you know, we, we, we decided to, you know, take a chance on him. And, um, you know, he didn't play on our national team the first year that he got here. We wanted him to get a lot of playing time and develop and, you know, not kind of stun his growth by throwing him into too competitive of an environment. And then his senior year, he played on our national team and, again, played with, Mark Williams, who had gotten drafted uh, by Charlotte, played yeah. at Duke, and you know he he had to fight for everything that he got, but you know started showing some flashes. But um, again, the the stuff that he's done that that he's been able to do at Purdue and what Matt's done with him is you know it's incredible. Yeah. Um, just just Super happy for him as well, too. Yeah, that's a remarkable track because now he's about to probably be at center for the Canadian national team coming up in the World Cup. So quite a ride for him. Brian, thanks so much for the time and educating us on a little bit about what Jarris was like down at IMG. Appreciate it. I appreciate your time. Thanks, guys. That's Brian Nash of IMG. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Welcome back to the Fan Midday Show with Scott Agnes. I am Jimmy Cook. Eddie Garrison with us as well. We'll continue our Pacers and NBA at large conversation with our next guest. You know him 
on his frequent stops on NBA TV as a contributor, as well as the voice of NBA.com's top 10 and a major player, one of the department heads over there for the sports business classroom at NBA Summer League. He is Bo Estes, nice enough to make some time with us. How you doing today, my friend? I'm doing well, man. Getting ready for sports business classroom and summer league, as you mentioned. Uh, I I hear that Victor Wimbanyama is going to get a little bit of attention there, so we're trying to prepare ourselves, Jimmy, as you might imagine. I understand it's a sellout already for sports business classroom. Is that correct? <laughs> Our friend Albert Hall has a smile from ear to ear right now. I'll just say that Bo, take us through first before we go Pacers specific. I understand that you had a live stream of the NBA draft with Sports Business Classroom. Was, was that the first year you guys have done that? And if so, what was that whole process like getting to have that exercise while also providing that content out there on draft night? Well, it, as you might imagine, four hours live on a draft is a lot of work. I hosted um, Dan Purcell, who I know you're familiar with and your listeners are familiar with, uh, was a contributor on that. He's a former executive with the New Orleans Pelicans and Eric Pincus, who everybody knows uh, he's a CBA expert and more, uh, works with Felicia Report, worked with us some at NBA TV. He was a part of it. But the real thrust of it, Jimmy, all our students that go through sports and business classroom, the ones that went into scouting, they became experts on particular prospects. They put together the film, and when that player was drafted, we allowed them to do the analysis, and we teed them up. So it was a lot of fun. Uh, and it was a good way to showcase the skills that these students learned at Summer League and Sports Business Classroom. Joined by Bo Estes here on the Fan Midday Show. Bo, I'm curious in terms of the development uh, of those individuals, those students really trying to make it in the NBA. Have you seen maybe a... An emergence of one niche more than the other, whether it's analytics, whether it's you know GM's the obvious one, but um, yeah. have you, what specific role has maybe taken a greater importance to your students? I think analytics does very well because there's a lot of call for that, and it's a new call for that. So we place a lot of students with NBA teams and G League teams and WNBA teams in analytics roles, but you know we we have a couple of G League GMs that sprang from our program. So, so there are those folks, there's uh, folks that go into teams as, as far as salary cap folks. Uh, we've got those folks with, I, I believe the Boston Celtics, Sacramento Kings and more. There's a lot of folks that go work for agents to be caps uh, experts. So there's a lot of jobs on those two fronts. I run the media and broadcasting program. The last two years, our producers for the, the student producers, one got a job on ESPN NBA and one got a job at a Las Vegas production company out there uh, doing some betting content. So we've got students all over the place with a ton of success. We put a ton of work into it, and we're really proud of what they're doing. But when you look back at the draft, we'll start big picture first outside of the Pacers. What stood out to you the most once the obvious selection of Victor Wembanyama was made, but also the – Shams Tarani had driven drama that was Brandon Miller and Scoot Henderson at 2-3. Uh, well, I tell you this. At the start of the night, Aaron Pincus said the team to watch is the Portland Trailblazers. He was most interested in who they would pick, what they would do if Brandon Miller went to Charlotte, as he did. Um, and, look, they went with Scoot Henderson. So I think that was the drama that we were following. And then the Thompson Twins going four and five was sort of a stunner. Uh, and then, you know, I, I think Dan Purcell kept noting how quickly and how far Cam Whitmore dropped uh, all the way down to 20. And, you know, those injury whispers uh, grow around a prospect and that momentum starts to uh, develop with, a, with, you know, his decline. Uh, but I think he landed in a pretty interesting spot uh, in, in Houston along with uh, Amin Thompson, uh, and that young team out there, it's, it's a pretty perfect spot for him. And, Bo, with that, you're, you're seeing a situation now with Whitmore and the Thompson Twit are going to be able – they were able to get Whitmore at 20, a guy that I think probably three weeks ago was penciled in right there at that top spot for them. So an incredible yeah. draft for them. Now it's about managing and developing that young talent because they have a lot of it, and there's only so many roles there. Well, think about it. They've got, you know, Amin Thompson. They've got Cam Whitmore. They've got Jalen Green, who's a scoring machine, although, you know, inefficient, obviously. Uh, they got Jabari from last year. Uh, they just so much talent on Houston. And I, you know, of all those people that I'm mentioning, I don't even know that I'm talking about the most talented player 
on that roster. Uh, so I, I just think that, you know, you, when you look at Alperin Shingun and the way that he can set up those guys, that's a young team to watch. They're, they're not going to win a championship next year or anything like that. Uh, but it's a young team to watch for the future. Uh, and, and like you mentioned, what do we do with all of this young talent? Who plugs in well where? Uh, is the questions that, that will keep the Houston Rockets organization up at night trying to figure out a good answer to that. Joe, Bo, the Thompson twins are very much a piece of proof of concept, if you will, of overtime elite and whether or not that that's a pathway that can work. Now, given the fact that they've only been you know in existence in that form for a year or two, it makes it you know they're licking their chops already, knowing that they have all this exposure and they have had not just one but two players go in the top five. Bo, when you take a temperature check of the entirety of pathways for kids out of high school to go to the draft, where does G League ignite if at all react to this? And is overtime elite? now an accepted pathway or does it very much rely on what the Thompson twins are able to do at the next level? Yeah, I think, I think it's an accepted pathway. If it works, if you get drafted, it's an accepted pathway. Uh, I think that, you know, there are several different ways to go. Now uh, college used to be the primary and preferred way, but you know, even look, I worked for the NBL over in Australia and the next stars program uh, has had players through. In fact, uh, the Indiana Pacers mm-hmm. drafted a next stars guy, Mojave King. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there's guys that make it uh, from all over the world in different ways. And if you make it, I think it's accepted. You're, you're right on, like, let's see, uh, you know, what their level is when they get to the NBA, how they have to adjust. All, all those preparation things are important. But I think right now uh, we're seeing a, an entirely new system and situation in place than what I grew up with and what I understood. And, you know, for the players, in a lot of cases, I think it's just better. Bo, you, you did mention Mojave King, and, and this is a guy that went pro, I think, as like a 16-year-old, as as <laughs> foreigners often do. I mean, we saw that yeah. with Boyan Bogdanovich, Domanis Sabonis here locally uh, when they played here. Do you, any insight, anything you can share with our audience about what type of game he has and what he might look like down the road uh, when he puts it all together? I think down the road is the key with him. You know, I, he had some moments with Cam in the NBL where I thought, boy, he's got a lot of skill. Uh, but when you get to the NBA, a lot of skill goes some some distance, but the holes in your game get exposed. And I think he may have a few holes in his game that, that need to be tightened up. And he'll have time now in Indiana because he's not, you know, their top pick. He's not a first-round pick. Uh, so he'll have space to grow. But I, I think, you know, I've seen his shot. His shot form looks okay. Uh, he has reasonable athleticism. So there, there's going to be some things that he has that are of value for the Indiana Pacers and they'll look into, but don't expect an immediate star. Bo Estes with us, covers the NBA as a correspondent for NBA TV and the voice of the NBA.com Top 10. Bo, in a perfect world, not, not speaking for the league, but speaking from your viewpoint, in a perfect world, is G League Ignite at the forefront of alternate college path for U.S. players? And if so, what is your feeling of, as you mentioned, seeing so many different pathways team or players can go, just focusing on, on stateside products with that question? Yeah, yeah, that's the key is it's a stateside situation. Um, I think, you know, there is some advantages to that. And what I would say is that if you get into an NBA situation, and, you know, G League Ignite is not the same as, as some of the other situations, but I think you have some safety, I guess is a, is a way I, I'll, I'll put it, is in that you have the people that are overseeing that organization have some responsibility to the G League. And they, I, I just think it's, it's safer in that way. Uh, but I don't know that they're – again, I'm just not sold on anything being preferred at this point. Mm. I'm not sold on anything being done at this point. I feel like there's just so much more that needs to shake out before we get a preferred path. Yeah, I would agree. I don't think there's any clarity in that other than the fact that there are now options. And on top of that, yeah. if you go to college, there's the real NIL opportunity, yeah. uh, depending on if the elite type of program and what type of player you are within that system. Uh, you're, you're seeing um, – Oscar Toshibwe, I think it is, from from UK. Could have been a second-round pick last year, went back, got a good NIL deal, ultimately came out of it 
this year and is now signing just a two-way deal with the Pacers upcoming. I also yeah. think back to like 15 years ago, a player like him or Zach Eady or Trace Jackson Davis, those guys would have been top 10 picks yeah. in the way th- players were valued back then. Absolutely. As well, it's a, you know, like Armando Baycott at North Carolina yeah. couldn't take the pay cut to go from Chapel Hill star <laughs> to, to, you know, like, oh, I hope I get a two-way deal. Exactly. I really hope I get – he can't take that pay cut. And you're right. The game is so much different. You have to be a versatile big now. You have to be able to shoot a little bit outside. You have to be able to cover a beat or two on a pick and roll. And some of these guys, you know, I mentioned Armando Baker. He struggles with that. So stick in college and keep that NIL money as long as you can. That's the good advice that you, many players in that regard receive that, you know, we've got 25 year old college players coming up this season. What's the, what's the kid's name from Alabama? Javon Quiverly, who's mm-hmm. transferred, I believe his name. He's, he's going to be 25 years old next season. Uh, that's incredible. You, you know, you think of the age that the Pacers first pick is he's 19 years old and this guy's six years older than him. He's still going to be in college next year. It's incredible. Bo, to build off of what Scott mentioned regarding the way the league has changed and valuing specific players focusing on big men the last 10 to 15 years, Zach Eady makes that decision after testing the waters heavily out of Purdue to come back. Obviously, NIL was involved there, but he decided that his best path was still another year at Purdue. When you look at Trace Jackson Davis going late, very late in the draft, towards the back end of the second round, as Scott mentioned, Oscar Shibway being an undrafted two-way player. Mm-hmm. But then I look at, there's guys like Cody Zeller that are still in the league, even though they're clinging, like they're still there. Is there a true pathway for the traditional big in this new format of the NBA? Or are they pretty much doomed to either overseas play or two-way deals that maybe find you on a roster spot every now and again in the league? Yeah, it's tough, man. It really is. I mean, if you, if you, I, like when you say traditional big men, I'm almost thinking like Moses Malone, <laughs> right? And going down, you know, like a guy down low who's going to get every rebound and every bucket four feet from the hole. If you pass it into him, you're never getting it back out. That's just the way it goes. It's tough for a guy like that to make it now. It's just you, you know you're not as desired. Uh, as a guy who can float around and, and, you know, maybe operate off pick and roll, uh, maybe make a pass after you receive it off a pick and pop. All those things that you need to do now, uh, I don't think of a traditional big man doing. So I think it's tougher for those guys to make it in the league. They get cooked on switches. Uh, it, it, you know, I think there is a place maybe for them, but it's deep roster. It really is. I, I don't know that that's a guy that's going to be a featured component. Uh, and even look at, like, like, let's say the guy who has the most traditional big man skills is Joel Embiid. That's not all he has. Right. He has so much more than just that. So I just think you have to bring more to the table now, and that's the way that the league is refereed. That's the way that the league is played. I just think that uh, you know it incentivizes guys who can do a little bit of everything. Joined now by Bo Estes of NBA and NBA.com. And Bo, I, w- I want to get down a wormhole a little bit that I'm sure you never answered any questions about whatsoever. And that's kind of being the, the top 10 guy. First of all, what is it like having that honor? And can you take us behind the scenes of your process? Say this was a Monday night slate of games. You have 12 games. What is it like in the evening where you got to hammer out all these probably two-minute quick updates and summaries? And nowadays, I talk to kids, you know, 15 and younger, and this is how they consume the league more than anything. Yeah. It's these uh, top 10 clips. It's highlights of every game. It, it, so you're really making an impact and heard uh, by a big audience. Well, it's wild. I was just doing a conference with students from around the world and, you know, my name came up, and I think maybe some people recognize, but as soon as I started talking, mm-hmm. you start to see people's eyes like, oh, okay, I know who this is. Uh, it's, it's amazing to me because, again, I came up in the 80s and 90s to think that this is a league that is now seen and heard around the world, and the impact we're having is such a, a, a real treat for me personally. Um, my process on a given night, if it's a 12-game night, boy, that's even tougher because we have to have eyes on each and every game. So we're all looking at every single game and trying to find what are the best two or three plays from each game. I on Twitter will send out an alert. Send me your nominees for the top 10 plays. And then 
So as it develops, guys, what happens is, let's say third quarter of the West Coast games, I start to have an idea of what some of the plays are going to be. And so in my mind, I can start thinking about what I want to say for each one. And if somebody hit a 50-foot buzzer beater to win the game, I know that's number one, right? There's just no doubt about it. And from there, um, you know, look, I'll get the, I'll get the top ten really quick after the last game ends. And my job is to turn that around in ten minutes. So I don't have time to write anything down. I don't have time to really sketch out anything. It's a two and a half minute clip. I will look at it once. I will think in my whatever pops into my head to say. I tend to say even if it you know if even if it risks my job, I probably will say it. Uh, and then you know I just roll with it. I, I turn it right around and do you know send it out. And my advantage is I've probably called more highlights uh, NBA highlights than anybody alive. So I can just do it now. It's like it's like a, it's like a, it's like a gear in your car. I just put it in that gear, and my brain starts going. Um, but yeah, it's a real joy. I'm lucky to have the job, and the impact that top ten has made has been wonderful my, for my career, and my life. And I just appreciate everybody that listens to it. I, I really it means the world to me. The one challenge I, I foresee, though, is. Those teams out west, those are the teams that oftentimes produce the best and most frequent highlights, right? Golden State, you got to include the Lakers, Sacramento now. So you got to really be waiting until the very end. Well, of the he's night. fixed that well, now. You guys, think about it. You, you guys will understand this. Thinking you're you're a young producer and you've got your top ten lined up, and then Steph hits a forty foot buzzer beater, and you're just thrown <laughs> into re-edit mode like crazy. Exactly. You know. It, they have to redo every single thing about what they've worked on. Um, and you're right. You have to watch till the bitter end because I, many, many times the number one play of the night has been the last play on the last West Coast game. So you just have to be open to that happening and be ready to change on the fly. And, you know, that delays our process a little bit, uh, obviously, but it is what it is. We make it work. Uh, and, you know, we want to produce the best possible product. That's that, issue number one for us and if we can tackle that we've done our job i don't want to take too much weight off your crossbow but to be clear i feel like if i'm not mistaken you're out west now so for you it's it's an eight o'clock finish instead of an 11 o'clock when you were out in atlanta right i feel like i screwed up so bad by operating at turner sports for 25 years in atlanta georgia (laughs) out west it is so much easier to cover the nba it's so much easier. You're getting done earlier. And guys, I, I lived in Maui for a month and change one time and covered the NBA from out there. It's even easier the further <laughs> west you go. I mean, it's real, there's really an idea where we all should be living out in Maui and doing this NBA gig. I, I, I'll be honest with you, it's fantastic. As we've seen the summer league year over year now, Bo, I feel like rightfully so injury concerns watching out for the franchise yep. stars you only see so often the top players really get consecutive game action i know victor Wobanyama said that he was going to participate in summer league he skips fibas now which i don't blame him to focus yep. on his rookie season how much if at all do you think we see some of the top players like Wobanyama, like scoot henderson like brandon miller out there in las vegas in a couple weeks well, I think each team has a different approach. I, I remember seeing a little clip from Wembenyama a week ago that was just sort of caught in a casual moment where somebody asked him if he's going to play in summer league, and his exact quote was, a little bit. Uh, I hope he plays a little bit in each game. I really do. If he can give us you know, 15 minutes in each game, that would be fantastic. But I understand the San Antonio Spurs position here. You know, you're coming off a year where you saw – Chet Holmgren lose an entire season in a, in a game that didn't matter. Uh, so I, th- I think, you know, San Antonio will be very conservative, but I do think we'll see him. You remember, you remember a couple of years ago, Jimmy, Zion Williamson yep. goes out and gets injured at halftime of this first game, and that's it. That was an earthquake. Show. Yeah. 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 An earthquake <laughs> happened that night. And we don't know if he caused it. Maybe he did. Uh, but yeah, so it, that's the way it goes. Um, I hope we see. I hope we see Victor Wembanyama. I would imagine we'd see more of a guy like Scoot, who's built like an NFL running back, who looks like he can take all the contact in the world. I wouldn't be surprised to see a bit more of him, and I bet he'll be really exciting. Uh, Brandon Miller, we'll see. Uh, but you know, I, I look forward to seeing all these guys and some of the stories of folks that are you know overseas and trying to make it back to the NBA, that, that's a lot of fun, too. Well, I think I'd be surprised if Victor plays more than two games. I think you'll for, for sure see him one because the NBA did it brilliantly on that first night, right? We get the, yeah. a beautiful pairing 
of Victor versus Scoot in night one, and then uh, I think it's the Thompson Twins after that play, squaring off, and those will be nationally on ESPN. So yep. you showcase that. You got a big momentum going into the weekend, but even even the other first-round picks, like the Pacers' Jairus Walker, guys like that usually play no more than three of the five games. Yeah, no, you shut him down. You really do. You, I think they want to see what we've got in this guy. I think we want to see how does he take coaching, how does he play in a team environment at this level. Because like I just mentioned a minute ago, there's going to be some men from overseas that are going to be there. So you're going to take contact like you haven't taken contact before. But uh, I don't think you want to exert them too much. And you, you remember last year, Paolo Bancaro right away, great, knocking it out of the park. And Jabari Smith. Uh oh, what's going on here? Like he wasn't as good, and so I think there's a little bit of that too. Like, how is this he responding mentally? And we don't want to get him into a bad place. So there's all of that that goes into these decisions. But I think item number one, particularly with Victor Wembanyama, and so much not just in San Antonio but in the league, riding on him. Let's be careful with him. Let's make sure he's healthy. Let's get him to training camp well, and we'll roll from there. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Bo, I know that you're focused all around the league and obviously you're prepped for a sports business classroom and the entirety of what Summer League brings to the table. But when we look locally at the Pacers and we have these conversations nationally on them, there appears to be a lot of optimism for the roster they are constructing, but again, they're on the path to perhaps a playoff spot next year, getting into that play-in next year, hopefully out of this rebuild process. As you look at the pieces they have here in Indiana, when you look at Tyrese Halliburton, when you looked at Bennett Matherin, Jarris Walker coming in now, Miles Turner, what do you envision for this team next season, and how does adding somebody of Jairus Walker, you talk about freak specimen, how does it help yeah. them bringing him in, pairing him up in the front court with Miles Turner? Well, I'll, I'll start here. Like, I feel like I said this every time I'm on with you, Jimmy. Expectations for Pacers fan is key. Uh, I don't think they're winning the championship next year. I really don't. <laughs> Bo, <laughs> come on now. Yeah, I, mean, I, I feel like I'm breaking some news here. I don't think they're going to win the championship. Uh, but, yeah, so, like, and Tyrese Halliburton is a star, borderline superstar. And if he's healthy, he's sort of got some all-NBA possibilities with him so you start there and that's a really good start because he he is the head of the snake down there or up there in indiana so i i think that's a great start you know when you when you talk about jairus walker i've seen some comparisons that i really like i saw aaron gordon a little bit and i saw larry johnson and i see a bit of both in his game he's really strong he's really physical and Again, just 19 years old and able to handle a little bit. The one dribble, the two dribbles in half court, I think, really helps. Um, He takes contact incredibly well. I don't think he's a great shooter, and I don't know that he's ever going to be a great shooter. You look at his free throw percentage uh, from college, 66%. That, you know, I I talked to Seth Partnow. He does analytics at uh, Sports Business Classroom. And when you're below 70% on free throw shooting, it's hard to, you know, there's not many cases where a guy scales up to be a great three-point shooter. If he's a decent enough three-point shooter, that's good enough. But, you know, the pieces that Indiana has in place, again, I could see a six seed in an optimistic setting. I could see maybe even a five seed. But, you know, look, in the Eastern Conference, one, Milwaukee, two, Boston, three, Philly. That's pretty pretty solid to me. I think Cleveland's really good. Uh, so I just think that there are some spots that are that are tough to beat out. Uh, but in that next group, I could see Indiana ascending into that sort of area pretty easily. Bo, last question before I let you go. Free agency is on the horizon. When you look at this class, but also for the first time in his career, the rumblings are louder than ever about Damian Lillard and whether or not he'll actually be on the move. What are you focused on and what are you tracking the most in your eyes with free agency on the horizon? I mean, I think you're right. I think uh, Damian Lillard is interesting because they drafted a player that is very similar to him in Scoot Henderson, at least from a size profile and from a, you know, he was a scorer first profile. So, you know, it gives them flexibility. They can try Damian Lillard and, and Scoot together, or they have options to go off of him. So that's, that's the number one thing. Um, there are other guys that are interesting to me. 
what's going to happen with Draymond Green? I don't think it's set in stone that he's coming back to Golden State. I really do not. So I think, you know, who values him and what he brings to the table is an interesting question as well. Uh, this is not a super, super, superstar class. It's really not. So, uh, and with the new CBA that, frankly, guys, isn't even done yet, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how these teams attack the new salary cap and how they uh, put pieces together if they want to wait to see how things shake out. Um, I'm fascinated by it. But, again, to me, it's not an overwhelmingly huge year uh, in the free agency market. Bo, Keep enjoying it out west. Have a great time at Summer League. Best of luck with the sellout over there for the Sports Business Classroom and hope to be crossing our paths here soon, my friend. All right. If you guys get to Vegas, come see me. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That's Bo Estes. Again, you can follow him on Twitter at NBA Bo, voice of NBA.com's top 10 and a frequent contributor with NBA TV. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Welcome back into the Fan Midday Show with Jimmy Cook and Eddie Garrison. I'm Scott Agnes. 201 here on The Circle. Let's continue our NBA conversation. Bring in friend of the show, Keith Smith, longtime NBA writer and reporter, Currently can read his work on Spotrack and, and more than anything, Spotrack. I always mess that up, Keith. But we got the new collective bargaining agreement coming up on July 1. A lot of teams or a handful of teams, including the Pacers, have cap space. What are some of the key storylines you are tracking heading into this weekend, Keith? Yeah, it's going to be a big uh, summer for the NBA. I was told a few weeks ago by a a handful of different people, it felt like one of those years where we're going to see one of those kind of resets of the league. Happens about every four or five years or so where there's a bunch of trades and sometimes a lot of free agent movement. And I think we're already seeing that. We've already seen uh, major trades, including one that's just uh, news broke in the last 10, 15 minutes or so. John Collins headed to the Utah Jazz. So, you know, we're, we're in a spot where I think we're going to see a lot more of that probably big trade free agent market not so great not not a ton of you know star guys there the ones that are out there are expected to stay but you know if you've got cap space you can facilitate trades easier uh, you can go fill needs you have so i think it's going to be a really busy active summer with that reset thought in mind keith how in what different ways i guess Will the new CBA impact that aspect of creativity, particularly those of teams that are past their championship window but have a ton of cap on the books and are trying to facilitate said reset deals? Yeah, you're going to see the most expensive teams in the league start to go one way or another. Uh, this summer. Either they're going to start shedding salary, which is something we saw the Golden State Warriors do with Jordan Poole. Uh, is they're going to swap him for Chris Paul uh, from the Wizards? Uh, because while they're taking on a little bit of money right now in Chris Paul's contract, they're saving a ton of money long term. And, and most of the more uh, rigorous penalties will kick in next year, about a year from now on the, these teams that are uh, really expensive and above what they're calling the the second tax apron. I like to call it the super tax. It's a little more descriptive. So they're, um, you know, so you're going to see that happen. But then you're going to see other teams like the Phoenix Suns who said, okay, cool. I know this grace period year is designed around getting rid of some salary, moving some salary along, uh, but this is our last chance to take on a ton of salary. So let's load up and do that right now, which is what they did in acquiring Bradley Beal. So we're going to be seeing some teams make, make some moves here uh, over the next uh, week or so uh, at the start of free agency that are designed long-term because the NBA is trying to push those really expensive teams to come back to the pack a little bit with their spending while forcing all of the other teams to come up a little bit with how much they spend and try to get gain in, I guess the best way to say it is introduce some parity into the league through roster building and financial consideration. And key to that last point, that was one thing I highlighted earlier in the show for the Pacers in particular, and the Spurs and other teams are having the same thought is now before the season, there there's the luxury or the, the tax floor that they, a salary floor that they must hit, whereas normally you can wait till about this time next year to get until that level and meet those spending requirements. So, so 
that's a whole new thing that's impacting the other teams. You talked about the teams at the top. This is impacting those teams in terms of the salary at the bottom. Yeah, absolutely. So we saw the, the team right there for you guys, the Indiana Pacers, a year ago sit on a ton of cap space uh, into the season, and they used that very wisely yeah. to renegotiate and extend Miles Turner's contract. And that was really you know, a great move by them, great move for Turner, uh, get, get some long-term stability in there with that situation. And it was almost at a I don't want to say no cost because I'm not the one writing the check. <laughs> right. No cost in terms of, of roster building, right? You basically had this extra cap space, so why not use it now because that was use it or lose it at space. In the future, what's going to happen is teams that are that far under the cap, they're going to be they're going to have what's basically like a false cap hold put on their books that's going to be sitting there to bring them up. So you're not going to be able to just sit on you know, $30, $40 million of cap space uh, because what the league wants them to do is, hey, spend that on guys, spend that on players, you know, spend it on, you know, you don't have to necessarily go be a, in the play, you know, for a max guy, but go spend it on three, four different guys at, you know, 10, 12 million apiece and, and bring those guys in and, you know, strengthen your roster. So, so that's what they're trying to do is, you know, incentivize those teams to spend more money that are the lower salary teams. Otherwise, you're going to be sitting there. The other thing they introduced too for those teams is if you're sitting there way under and then when the luxury tax bills, come due, which everybody shares in that were non-tax paying teams, you won't get your share of those tax bills if you don't uh, meet your minimum salary obligation. So that's going to be a new dynamic as well that comes into play here over the next couple of years. That's big money too. I think Woj reported that it was like $44 million, the most of any team for the Pacers this past season. So you you got to believe they like those and will want those checks. So you got to follow those those qualifications uh, to, to reach that threshold. And, and Keith, I'm curious what do you foresee will be the trickle-down effect because of that? Because previously what you would do is see teams, because of that flexibility, they could get to the trade deadline. Maybe they wait and take on a bad contract. Or maybe at the end of a year, a team just has injuries and they need to blow up a team so then they can offload assets. Now you maybe won't have that quite of that much flexibility because you've already had to tie down some of your cap space to reach those thresholds that you just addressed. Yeah, I think you're on it with with that. I think what we're going to see is teams almost have to pick a direction now in the summertime versus kind of taking the approach of, well, let's let the first couple months play out and see what it looks like headed into to the season. Now what they're going to do is say, all right, well, we can't just sit on all this, you know, extra you know space and then we'll eat contracts in the course of the year from a team whose maybe season isn't going quite the way they thought it would. You, you almost have to do that now. And, and I think, you know, that's one of the unintended consequences of this maybe. I think there's also a couple of other unintended consequences is you're going to see some guys who might be more middling free agents where it's like, oh, okay, that's a nice player, seven, eight million dollars a year who may get, you know, 12, 15 million because teams are like, well, we have to spend anyway. We kind of like their fit. Let's just pay them a little bit more and go. On the other end, for the really expensive teams like Phoenix, for example, because they're going to be limited to basically re-signing their own guys, I think you're going to see the Suns kind of give contracts out to guys like Torrey Craig, Jock Landale, kind of those mid-level free agents that should be, you know, in the range of, you know, minimum deal to $7 million deal. They're probably going to get deals that are $5 million to $10 million because for the Suns, what that does is that makes them a, a more, uh, more salary in a trade that they can go send out down the line. So there's going to be a lot of interesting things that happen as far as those things go as teams build out their rosters here over the course of the summer. Keith, when you're examining team by team and you factor in, the, as Scott mentioned, the cap floor it's going to be implemented and the way that teams that spend big, like bigger market teams, as we just saw with Atlanta, trying to get out from underneath contracts, as we continue to see that mesh between teams being more willing to spend, but also the higher end spenders trying to get out from under these deals, the value that we just saw in that John Collins trade was effectively get Collins out of town. We don't want to pay him anymore. Okay. You're giving us Rudy Gay and a, and a draft pick. Okay, fine. Thank you. This burden's finally off us. How more commonplace, if at all, is that type of trade going to be not just the trade itself, but the amount of, lackluster assets being moved to salary dump. 
Yeah, we're going to see a handful more of trades like, like that. For example, the Bradley Beal trade. That's you know, basically what Washington did in that deal. Now I know they've turned Chris Paul's uh, contract into Jordan Poole, and you know that, that's probably a lot is dependent on what you feel about Jordan Poole as a player, but the main get for the Wizards was, hey, we got out of 200 plus million owed to Bradley Beal over the next four years. Now they took back you know 100 plus million for Jordan Poole, and that's in part because spending you know over a hundred million dollars in cap space next summer wasn't going to be a real thing that the Wizards were actually going to be able to do. So, so they they said, hey, we'll spend a little bit now taking a guy like Jordan Poole, who I'm presuming they kind of like, and they feel like, ah, eh, still be tradable down the line. But you're going to see more deals like that. It's if we go back, if you've been following and covering the league for you know, maybe more than a decade, it used to be pretty regular that teams were really capped out and things like expiring contracts were a huge thing that teams wanted to have because that allowed you to trade them to maybe take in a player whose contract on another team ran two, three years, but you know, questionable for where that other team was headed. That's kind of what we saw in this John Collins trade where it was, if you look at it on space, like that's all they got for John Collins. <laughs> what they really got was John Collins isn't on the cap sheet anymore. Especially for ownership, that seems to be mandating it. We'll see, but that seems to be the direction that's headed as we're joined here with Keith Smith. Spotrack does a great job covering the NBA, and in particular the cap sheets and all the minutia that goes into that. It's very complex, and, and I think fans in general are caring for it and studying that more than ever. Um, and Keith, let's bring it back local to the Pacers. They really don't have a bad contract on their books. First of all, I think this offseason will be about agreeing to a uh, max contract extension with Tyrese Halliburton. And then after that, I think perhaps consolidating again, perhaps a little bit. Maybe that's likely moving Daniel Tice. Maybe that's moving one of the guards in the backcourt. But you project the team to have about $32 million. And so right now, and currently with just one roster spot, I also wonder, do they offer some kind of J.J. Redick deal for a veteran where you go big for one, two years because you're able to? I love it. You called out the example I use all the time, which is J.J. Redick. When <laughs> Philadelphia was ready to start winning, finally, right? It was They paid J.J. Redick you know, back then, was that five years ago, I believe, six years ago. They gave him $19 million, and a lot of people were like, whoa, for J.J. Redick? But the reality was Philly only really had about one, two roster spots to fill, and they had a bunch of which at that time, $19 million was a good chunk of cap space. They basically said, yeah, we can overpay to fill one spot. If you're the Pacers, you're in a great spot here because with $30 million or so in cap space, what you can do is, let's, and I'm completely making this up, not reporting, but let's say they love Kyle Kuzma in free agency. They could say, hey, you know, okay, your best offer is $20 million from another team. We'll give you $25 million over the next two years you know, each season and come in here and fill a huge need. And what that does for the Pacers is you fill a need, but the key is keep the contract short enough so that if it does turn kind of sour, it's not exactly the perfect fit you would hope for. You can get out of it very easily within a year or two. And now that's going to be the kind of thing that they're very well positioned to do, because as you said, They've only got about one, maybe two open roster spots to fill. And, you know, that that's a great spot to be in is having a ton of cap space. You know, with, you know if you've got $40 million in space or you've got to fill 10 spots, that doesn't go quite as far as, you know, having 30 with only one or two to fill. And that, that's good. It also is, you know, that's a great piece to have as an extra chunk in a trade. You know, if you, effectively, if you're going to trade Daniel Tice at $9 million, you add him to your 30 $32 million in cap space. Now we can bring in a $40 million player if you wanted to go that route or a couple you know, $20 million guys or whatever. So their flexibility is really, really solid in Indiana. Keith, in years past for free agency, there's always been a handful of guys at the very top that have made the market freeze because teams are wanting to bring in a top-tier player and spend a lot of money to do so. But it's a, it's a courtship process that sometimes makes everybody else have to either look around and make a decision if they want to try to go chase lower to mid-level guys or if they want to chase those that are at the very top of the board. When you look at this year's free agent class, Russell Westbrook, James Harden, potentially Kyrie Irving, are any of those names the type that are market freezers? And if so, how does that impact the rest of the league as they're looking to approach free agency this year? 
Maybe James Harden. We'll, we'll see. If James Harden is serious about entertaining offers from the Rockets, we've heard a couple other teams loosely mentioned, but, but if he's serious about that, uh, then that will kind of hold things up a little bit because for Houston sitting on about $60 million in cap space, they're in a spot to really kind of control a lot of the free agency here because they, they can basically outbid anybody for any one of these guys that's a free agent. And what that could do is the next guy down the list that they want to go after, let's say it's a Chris Middleton or a Brooke Lopez or somebody like that, that could hold them up because they may, you know, say, hey, hold on, if we can't get Harden, you know, we've got $20, $30 million for you that we can go after and we can try to make that happen. And that tends to be, you know, a little bit of things that hold things up. We're also going to see Damian Lillard, I think while we've been talking, Chris Haynes reported, sounds like he's sitting down with Portland this week to have a conversation about where where they're going. You know, we'll see. I mean, that's, you know, we're we're year, you know, umpteen of (laughs) Damian Lillard, you know, trade stuff. But if that turns into Damian Lillard, you know, says, all right, you know, put me on the trade market, I want to go. Obviously, that'll freeze things quite a bit because what will happen is everybody's going to spend at least a little bit of time lining up their best offer for Damian Lillard, and we'll see where that kind of comes comes together with that. So that, that, that has the potential to kind of stall things out a little bit here, at least for you know a good chunk of the teams in the league. Kate, doesn't it seem like Dame now – moving on seems inevitable because of who they've drafted, what that roster looks like. And it's one of those, I think it's probably, I think we've talked about this maybe on texts or DMs. It's like, like the Pacers were previously. It feels like Portland's past this expiration date. Yeah. I mean, it does. Now I will say you're right. Y'all have great experience with Miles Turner has been traded every year for (laughs) 20 years. Right. And then he's never actually been traded. It feels like we're, we're a little bit there with Damian Lillard. But what I will say is Bradley Beal was in that boat. Now he's on the Phoenix Suns, right? So I think we're, we're in a little bit of a similar spot here with Portland. And, you know, I, I, my personal feeling, and this is just, you know, my read of this situation is neither Damian Lillard nor the Trailblazers wants to be the one that says, hey, we, you know, this has run its course. Let's yeah. break up. Neither one wants to be the bad guy here when I think in reality it's kind of like we all have those friends where it's like, God, would you break up already? Like you guys don't like each other anymore, you know, and you're just ruining every uh, it for everybody else. It feels like that's a little bit where we're at, but neither side, you know, wants to be the one to actually put it on the table. And we'll, we'll see. It, feel, it does feel like they'll work closer than ever because Portland, you know, went young at the draft. They kept their pick. They drafted a guy who overlaps with Damian Lillard positionally. They're in a spot where if they want to hit a hard reset, now's the time to do it. Keith, that comment had me thinking about you know coaches getting fired and the mutual. We have mutually agreed to move on or part ways. It does feel like that that would be honest if it got to that level here. <laughs> Unlike those coaching <laughs> announcements. Yeah, exactly. You know that that would be. You know, I think we. We would all respect it, right? And be like, yeah. okay, they're they're finally finally there with, with the coaching announcement. I could tell. I won't say who the coach was, but I could tell you, I had a coach tell me once, yeah, and nothing was mutual when they told me you're out of you know a bunch of money that was headed your way. Like there was nothing mutual about that. I wanted it, and they told me, you know, nope, you're not getting it. So so I think that's uh, you know, there, there's always a little bit more of a. Yeah, I don't know how mutual it was unless the guy has an immediate job lined up for the next one. So, But, yeah, I'm with you. With the Damian Lillard situation, it does feel like we are maybe finally there. I, I said going into the draft, I have a very hard time seeing Damian Lillard and now since he, since he was drafted, Scoot Henderson suiting up and playing games together in Portland. It just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Keith, what's your evaluation on a free agent like Kyle Kuzma? Because I've struggled to get a proper read on him, even though he was the best player on a Wizards team that you know was what they were last year. But then you try to incorporate, well, what did he look like when he was on a real contender out in L.A. towards the back end of his tenure there? And well, he wasn't a fully mature player yet, perhaps that he needs to do what he did, which is go out and try to spread his wings somewhere in Washington. If he were to end up with a team, let's just say for the sake of argument, like the Pacers, because they're potentially linked to maybe another guard or a forward, perhaps, where is the happy medium between his contract evaluation and not overpaying for a player that doesn't have a as clear-cut evaluation as you might like in this free agent class? 
Yeah, that's kind of the tricky part, right? Because you're evaluating how much of his stats are real versus uh, they're just kind of put up because of the situation. I tend to think they're a little bit more real with Kyle Kuzma just because he's always been a pretty efficient player. He makes most of his shots. He's you know a good shooter. Uh, He's pretty good rebounding, better passer than he gets credit for. He's not a great defender, but he holds his own defensively. So I tend to feel feel pretty good about Kyle Kuzma. If the team gave him you know something in the average annual value of you know, 25, 26 million a year, it wouldn't surprise me at all. And I think that'd be perfectly fair. And then we'd see that kind of come together, um, you know, here over the, the, you know, life of the deal. I think that would be perfectly fine. Ideally, because he's starting to encroach a little bit, you know, on the age 30 line, maybe you try to go a little higher on the front end and have it be one of those descending contracts. So if he does fall off at all, it matches that. But I think, you know, even if you go with the standard raises on a deal, you're going to be perfectly fine with him if it averages out at around 25 million or a little bit more, because I think, you know, you put him in the right spot with the right guys around him, you're going to see his efficiency go up even more because then the idea is, hey, he's getting better shots, more wide open looks, and you're getting a really good player. And if you have injuries or anybody's out of the lineup for any reason, you kind of throw him the ball and say, hey, we need you to go get us 25 tonight, and he can make that happen too. Keith, thanks so much for the time. We'll see you out in Vegas, all right? I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Great stuff there by Keith Smith. You can check out his work at Spotrack. does a great job crunching the numbers, explaining the minutiae that you need to understand why teams are doing the deals they are doing, like we just saw with Atlanta essentially offloading one of its former first-round picks in John Collins.